Well, hello and welcome to the autumn winter season of the podcast from The Story Hive. We think that short stories, they've always had the power to entertain us and sometimes even make us think a bit. But we're not going to baffle you with a load of that today because we want our regular reminder, as always, our main platform can be found three w's the storyhive.co.uk that's the home of amazing stories where you can find all of our collections and novels in one place so without further ado here's the first story today from today's three story collection as always and it's from the other place and the story is called for love he stood at the kitchen window filling the kettle another morning 6 30 and like everyone, he had his regular morning ritual, a repetition, he thought, comforting. He'd slept tolerably well, better for the last few days, last night not so much. And he gazed down across the street, the large white house opposite, its hanging wisteria blooms, its pristine neatness. A pigeon cooed and flew straight from the bush in its small garden, more of a strip than a garden, really, running out from one side of the house. London was full of such tiny gardens, space at a premium. His third-floor apartment, not even having a balcony. And the pigeon made him smile. They always brought back a memory of childhood, a happy one. Him and his friends, camping in the woods, the sound of the pigeons in the surrounding trees. Carefree time, young, innocent, a million years away from the trials and tribulations of his adult life. And he picked up a tea bag and he put it in his cup. He'd started using cups more recently, before big mugs. Now he wanted to reduce his tea consumption, a health thing he felt. He often made small changes like this. He liked to think it was all doing him some good. He'd cut red meat from his diet just last year, processed sugar the year before. Now it was tea reduction. And he read things, articles, watched documentaries, all influencing him. And right then he was wearing some new lightweight slippers he'd read about. Orthopedic, apparently. Good for the posture, helping the back too. Little knobbly bits inside, cushioned in some way. The day passed slowly. He had lots to do, crossing them from his daily list. He liked lists. They helped him concentrate, not to miss things out. It was efficient, he felt. Some work, some personal. He'd sit at the breakfast table and carefully write a series of post-it notes emptying his head of all he needed to do. Being a freelance writer meant he had to organise his own time, clients needing things, usually a simple deadline, nothing too arduous. He wrote the building journal article. He sent the new brochure material to a regular client in the hotel trade, plus his invoice, of course. He started some more work on the novel, just 2,000 words. He ordered a new power bank, the last one dying two days ago, the little light refusing to go on, indicating it wouldn't charge any more. He reinsured the car, a rip-off, he felt. He made five calls to friends he'd been meaning to call. He sent Sally a funny video with a cat and a text message, her almost instant replying, making him smile. The little love hearts tacked on to the end of her message. He arranged to meet Bob. He took the rubbish out. Thursday, tomorrow, bin day. Tomorrow, he was teaching at the college. He did that three days a week now. The money was very good. Plus, he enjoyed it. The student's very receptive. And he quickly scanned his teaching notes and presentation stuff. All good. The hours passed. And finally, he flicked the oven on. 
a shepherd's pie he'd made yesterday from the freezer. He often marvelled where the time went, and then he watched a documentary on computers and went to bed. He stood at the kitchen window filling the kettle. Another morning, 6.30. Like everyone, he had his regular morning ritual. A repetition, he thought. Comforting. He'd slept tolerably well, you know, better for the last few days. Last night, not so much. And he gazed down across the street, the large white house opposite, its hanging wisteria blooms, its pristine neatness. And a pigeon cooed and flew straight from the bush in its small garden. More of a strip than the garden, really. Running out from one side of the house. London was full of such tiny gardens, space at a premium. His third floor apartment not even having a balcony. And the pigeon made him smile. He froze. Hang on, he thought. The pigeon. He'd just seen its flight path. It was exactly the same as yesterday morning. First it had been on the fence, then in the bush. Then he'd seen it break into flight, heading straight upwards across the street. He saw its grey underside, the white tips on its wings. He was good at detail. He was a writer. He remembered things like that. Then it had disappeared off to one side of the kitchen window, one of its wings flaring outward, a black patch and a white stripe. He stood still. This was ridiculous, he thought. It's impossible, just a coincidence. <laughs> he mentally chided himself for being over-imaginative on a mad thought, and he dismissed it instantly thinking instead of his meeting in town. A new company he'd never worked for before, and it looked very promising. They said they loved his work. Hinting at a regular online column, this could be great. And he finished filling the kettle, and the day stretched out before him, like a line of his post-it notes. Until finally, he returned from meeting Carol and Shrita at the Frontline Club. It's a journalist hangout. They'd watched a new documentary on the legal mining trade. Loads of other writers filmmakers and people he knew he could connect with. If he was honest, he felt tired. The day was good, though. The early meeting, brilliant. A certain commission, pretty much guaranteed. The film concerning, but thought-provoking. And the girls, always fun to be with. Shrita's big laugh, Carol's dry wit, setting him off and her. And tomorrow night, he'd see Sally. God, he loved her. He knew he did. He had to take it slow. They'd been dating for three months now. She was gorgeous. Smart, funny, sexy. An old university friend of Carol's. He knew he owed her one for this. But this wonderful woman, Sally. His thoughts now pleasantly filled with her smiling face. Until finally and gratefully, he climbed into bed. He stood at the kitchen window filling the kettle. Another morning... 6.30. Like everyone, he had his regular morning ritual. A repetition, he thought. Comforting. He'd slept horribly well, better for the last few days. Last night, not so much. And he gazed down across the street, the large white house opposite, its hanging wisteria blooms, its pristine neatness. And a pigeon cooed and flew straight from the bush in its small garden. More of a strip than a garden, really. Running out from one side of the house. London was full of such tiny gardens, space at a premium. His third floor apartment not even having a balcony, and the pigeon made him smile. Shit, shit. He stood very still. He'd forgotten about it. But this was off. This, this, was, this was off. It was an exact repeat of yesterday and the day before. He knew the pigeon. He could describe its direction, its colour, the way its wings flared as it disappeared from view. 
He gripped the sink. No, no, this was ridiculous. Birds flew around, pigeons especially. This was London. He'd seen a great flock of them in a small park. Maybe it just liked the neighbour's garden, its similar flight path. Just a mad coincidence? It seemed unlikely. Hmm. In his head, he was now concerned. That problem, five years back. The doctor had said, burnout. The stuff with Beth leaving, the car accident. That had been a crappy year. The tablets had helped, the therapy. Thankfully, that was just that was just a thing of the past, he felt. Life was pretty good. Sally was amazing. A game-changer, he felt. God, he knew he'd fallen for her. And fallen hard. But she seemed very happy about it, genuinely. Income was great, getting better, in fact. But he couldn't help himself, though. His ordered mind now needing some confirmation, some solid proof, just to be sure. He sipped his tea, now furiously tapping away on his keyboard, describing the pigeon, its flight path, its colour, the way it flew from the fence towards the window, the flare of the wing, the colour of its underside. This was one of his jobs, his college course, descriptive writing in ten modules. And he quickly covered seven pages, Highly detailed, the memory still sharp, and he sat back. He was mad, he knew it, but he couldn't think of anything else to do. And after a while, the day assumed its usual rhythm, each post-it note being crumpled and put in the bin. Two pieces for the local newspaper, ordering the shirt for Chris's birthday, ordering the new ink cartridges, get more milk and bread, fill up the car for the weekend trip to his sisters in Cambridge, meet Sally. Grab a cake from that new organic place, or use the last of the shepherd's pie and start the new Rivers of London book he just bought. It was a good day. Productive. He stood at the kitchen window filling the kettle. Another morning, 6.30, like everyone, he had his regular morning ritual. A repetition, he thought, comforting. He'd slept tolerably well, better for the last few days. Last night, not so much. And he gazed down across the street, the large white house opposite its hanging wisteria blooms, its pristine neatness. And a pigeon cooed and flew straight from the bush in its small garden. More of a strip than a garden, really, running out from one side of the house. Yes, London was full of such tiny gardens, space at a premium, his third-floor apartment not even having a balcony. And the pigeon made him smile. His heart raced now. He'd stood and carefully watched, really carefully, not his usual muzzy-headed morning brain, but his very focused writer's brain, noting the details. And now he sat at his desk, reading back what he'd written the day before. It was correct. Every detail. The flapping sound he could hear, the cooing that first alerted him to its initial takeoff, the way it unerringly headed straight towards his window, the colour, the underside markings, the way the right wing flared as it moved out of view. He sat on the floor now. He thought he was past all that stuff. They'd initially said overwork. The burnout, the medication, the voices, the visions. But he'd known it was all about Beth. Him finding her with that girl in her bathroom, the shower. He let himself in a surprise. She tried to explain. Ten years, he'd screamed. Ten fucking years of promises saying that all would stay together. The house they planned to buy the next year. All those plans, the children, the dog... It was all bullshit, just bullshit. She was just bullshit. He felt destroyed by it. He couldn't process it. It hurt on so many levels, 
was beyond description. Then, six months later, the car accident. He'd been very lucky, minor injuries. Hadn't been his fault at all. He'd been stationary, hit by a drunk driver. The guy died instantly. <sighs> this fucking pigeon nonsense. He breathed as slowly as he could. They said, do that, do that. They said he'd recover. And he thought he had, but evidently not. And he thought about Sally. He couldn't lose her. She was amazing. The best thing that had happened to him in years, he felt. And he looked at the printed pages in his hand. And his head ached fiercely. But this, this stuff, he hadn't imagined it. He'd seen it three times now. Fuck. The college, he thought. He, oh, God, he had to be there at 12. And he shook himself like a wet dog. Christ knew what he was going to do. All evening he researched it, scrolling through online forums, articles, medical reports. He was good at this, all part of his skill set. It didn't help. There was nothing anywhere, apart from the crazy stuff, usually about aliens, big pharma, the usual conspiracy nuts. And finally he returned to the last of his daily schedule, the post-it notes peeling from their sheet. And he set the alarm. Before he did, he put together his camera setup on its stand. He hadn't used it in ages. It was a good one, a Lumix G7. Sharp video, good lenses. And he felt his hands shake. He just needed proof and he hoped he was wrong in a way. He couldn't face therapy and that nonsense again. And he hardly slept at all, looking at the clock. And finally, it was 15 minutes past six. And he went into the kitchen. His breath stopped in his throat. The window. There was nothing outside. No view. Just a blank, a white blank. Nothing. His legs nearly gave away. Jeez, what the hell? And suddenly the window seemed to flicker and the view was back. And he stood in the middle of the kitchen and he slightly leaned forward. He could see the white house, the hanging wisteria, the strip of garden. He'd seen it for years, that morning view, the regular view. And he lifted up the camera and moved the zoom button and he looked at the screen. Nothing was moving. It was a still image. And then a thought occurred. His heart now pounding in his throat. He moved the camera back to wide angle. He positioned it on its stand, pointing it at the view. And then he stepped forward. He picked the kettle up, now filling it. The wisteria slightly moving now on the White House, a breeze evident, and the pigeon flew into his eye line exactly as it clearly did every day. Same direction, same angle, same colour, same wing flare, same disappearing out of eye line every day. The routine, the getting up at 6.30 exactly, the filling of the kettle, the regularity of life, just habit, he thought. He thought of Sally, her smiling face, and the thought of seeing her again made his pulse lift. Their future together, it could happen. He breathed in, closing his eyes, trying to process everything. What, what was happening? He flicked the kettle off. He wasn't going to lose her, not for anything, and he turned the camera off carefully deleting the film file from the day before. He'd delete the pigeon flight description next. 
for love, he thought, for love. Well, we hope you enjoyed that one. And getting straight on with it, here's the second story in today's lineup. And again, it's from the Other Place collection, but this one's a little bit different, and it's called The Complaint. Dear Mr. Robert Plank, Thank you for your communication of the 6th inst, which I can assure you we at Tranton Technologies take very seriously indeed. Again, I must apologise for the length of time it has taken for us to respond to you, and that this, my email, may feel a little long-winded given the rather long nature of my reply. Firstly, Robert, I'd like to take the liberty of addressing you by your first name, as Mr Plank seems so formal. So to begin, Robert, we'd like to congratulate you on your purchase of our newest model, the Trantum Quantum Infrared Pulse Spectrographer X50. We are incredibly proud of this model, and hope you are too. Now, notwithstanding your complaint, it really is the latest in quantum infrared pulse spectrography, and many of our clients have expressed their delight in owning it. Of course, being such a new piece of technology, there are bound to be what we like to term slight anomalies. However, we've now emailed you a software upgrade we believe could fix your immediate issue. I was rather intrigued by your statement, and then a portal opened up and swallowed my entire house. We will need a little more specific information than that to successfully deal with your complaint, Robert. However, at this juncture, I feel I must congratulate you on your prescience in getting your family out of the premises before it completely disappeared. As you know, health and safety is one of our watchwords, and a whole section can be found on our website about safe practices and personal protective equipment. Am I given to understand that you operated the X50 outside of your home laboratory? I feel I must point out that it does clearly state in the instructions the X50 must only be operated within the Tranton hyperbaric zoning chamber, as indicated in the accompanying diagram. Plus, at the risk of sounding pedantic, you're aware the field generated by the X50 is an unlimited 15 megacycle burial capacity, and I feel this rather neatly addresses your next comment. As I then turn the power switch to PYQ as stated in the manual, the portal then collapse, but not before slicing number 52 Asasia Gardens, my neighbour, Mrs Jane Stevenson's bungalow, into two pieces, somehow placing each piece above the first, the bottom section now left floating above the other where it still remains. A very, very intriguing idea, we think. However, I do not wish to be contradictory, but the power switch setting should have been set at PQY and not PYQ, as you rather unfortunately indicated in your communication. Yes, I do take on board the very tiny writing on that switch and printing it in black ink on a black background was not, as you state, the greatest bleeding idea. But I have now notified my colleagues to address that as soon as possible. It's a small point, I know, Robert, but it's best to be precise about the things I feel. After all, good science is about precision. Now, at Trantons, we've all supported home science and our incredibly keen prices support that. Our founder, my father, Professor Michael Tranton's vision up until his unfortunate disappearance last year, which you may have read about in the paper. Now, my father strongly believed that the amount of brilliant men and women taking up science experimentation as a hobby at home had to be supported. And he, of course, acted upon this very powerfully held belief by founding the company that still bears his name today. 
And of course, I have to admit the X50 is a rather surprising model for home device usage in our range. It has indeed pushed the limits of our technology to the maximum. However, such was my father's belief in its capability for good, we decided to press ahead with its launch. The same launch I gather you attended at last year's HomeCon Science Fair in Birmingham. Although I still contest the subsequent huge fire was not, as stated, anything to do with our display stand, despite the reports of burning beams of light 600 feet high coming from our coffee maker. Now, I wanted to press you, Robert, a little further on the point you made about your son, Geoffrey, whom you described as now being invisible to the human eye. Now, I must confess, I've talked to the team, and we all feel that young Geoffrey must have somehow accidentally stepped into the initial strobe flash as the X50 started its first cycle. I have attached a diagram on strobe flash recycling and wish you the very best of luck with it. Geoffrey sounds a lovely lad, Robert, and I agree it's imperative he leads a perfectly normal life at school with his friends. And plus, I, of course, totally concur with the fact his mother is obviously upset by what's happened. I do hope her therapy works out and her ability to smell colours and hear what cats are thinking eventually fades. Everyone, including myself at Trenton Technologies, wishes her a speedy recovery and please pass this on to Mrs Plank. In answer to your question, what kind of company are we? As I previously mentioned, my father, Professor Michael Trenton, had a vision. A vision where science equipment should not be beyond the means of keen amateur scientists like yourself, Robert. And true to his word, in 1983, he created Trenton Technologies, producing the first home electron microscope for under £100. A staggering achievement, I'm sure you'll agree, Robert. The later court cases concluding that the explosions were mainly caused by faulty operation, in no way could be laid at our company's door. As then, we're still a truly family company, and we employ a team of brilliant amateur product research and development individuals, as well as our support office staff. Currently, I am the Managing Director, in case you were going to ask me, as my brother Stephen is currently recovering in hospital after an unfortunate, well, incident with our new Tranton Fluids high-capacity scanning machine. The soon-to-be-released Tranton Flux 851. All the other models thankfully now returned after our product recall. Many of the deaths, in my opinion, avoidable tragedies. The family has been assured Stephen's body will revert back to its normal shape in time and that he will be able to lead a full and normal healthy life, albeit mainly underwater. Simply for the purpose of gathering information, Robert, and because you rather unwisely ignored the operating instructions on the X50 that it should not be operated other than with a Tranton hyperbaric zoning chamber, a brochure and complimentary discount token serving 25% is attached, means, Robert, that I do have a follow-up question for you. Acting upon some other clients' helpful comments on our forum, I'm keen to understand what exactly you mean all vegetation and greenery died within a 10,000 metre radius. Can you confirm this? Do you have, for example, any support pictures? In our initial testing phase, we obviously checked the machine's parameters. And apart from one tiny issue with all the plastic nearby completely melting as it powered down, which we addressed, we found no issues to do with any nearby plant life. Your observations, of course, are very intriguing. Of course, we're very sorry the X50 hasn't lived up to your not unreasonable high expectations. But in answer to your question, who developed and created the device, although I do take issue with your exact phrasing being which psychopath made this thing, I can let you in on a little company secret. And yes, as you may have guessed, it was my father, the brilliant professor Michael Tranton, the man behind all our technology. Obviously, we're all disappointed, nay, upset, when his entire research laboratory vanished from its position on the Blakethorpe Industrial and Science Park. 
only to be later found in pieces scattered across a large part of Nova Scotia. This event thankfully happening on a bank holiday Monday, where my father and his other colleagues were attending the ScienceCon 60 trade exhibition outside Manchester Airport. They were showing off our new Tranton Mass and Composition Manipulator P84. Now luckily we do have security camera footage from inside my father's laboratory just prior to the rather unfortunate displacement activity and his unfortunate decision to trial a new portable Tranton Mass and Composition Manipulator P84 simply added to the issue we believe. From what we can estimate he should rematerialize quite soon. Now one rather embarrassing issue be we don't currently know where. Our current best guess is somewhere in hyperspace the multiverse or the Basildon area, we haven't quite pinned it down. But we are confident we can eventually track his whereabouts, so here's hoping our lovely pioneering and visionary leader can return to us and to head up our company once again. Plus, the data we have collected has allowed us to make some important changes to the new model, and hopefully the others we've recalled should show up soon along with their owners. Now, to answer another early question you posed, unfortunately due to the operation of X50 in a non-prescribed manner as stated in your original communication we are unable to offer you a full refund and of course I'm sorry to hear of your incarceration under the Terrorism Act and we're all hoping the court case ends very well but in the spirit of goodwill we'd like to offer you another discount code for our upcoming Tranton Plasma Modulating Bencometer a fantastic device I'm sure you'll agree please see the attached brochure again Robert I must apologise, but acting upon advice from our solicitors, we're unable to give you our exact location at this time. This, I can assure you, not being any legal trickery, it actually being because we don't exactly know where we are. My colleagues believe we may be somewhere just outside the spiral arm of Alpha Centauri, or in same kind of space-time loop, but again, we don't have the exact coordinates at present. Frankly, we were surprised to even receive your emails, however, happily we did, Robert. Let me end by once again assuring you of our ongoing commitment to client support here at Tranton Technologies, serving the amateur scientific community apparently since 1504, 3073, and of course today, November the 100th, 6030. Should you have any other questions, please do not hesitate to contact us. Yours sincerely, Dr. Basil Tranton, BSc Ons, Oxen Diped, Managing Director, Tranton Technologies. Now, usually at this point, we would actually talk to you about writing and how we go about it and all the things to do with writing. But instead, we've decided, instead of wasting your time in the audio section, why not go and look on TikTok? Because we have our entire writing series there in little short form videos, which we think is a lot easier for you. It also allows us to shoot straight on to story three in today's collection. Now, this one's called The Bodyguard, and it's from the collection called Just The Job. So anyway, here we go, it's the bodyguard. Cliff wasn't a bodyguard. He was a close protection officer. He'd explained it hundreds of times, but people really, well, they just didn't know the difference. You see, a bodyguard was just some guy, big usually, who stood around looking big. Was a close protection officer, was trained, highly trained in his case, 10 years in the Royal Marines, two years advanced emergency medical technician training, instructor of mixed martial arts, and a holder of every kind of advanced driving license. And Cliff was, as described by the agency, 
a highly skilled asset, one who commanded top money too, which had been his later plan all along. He'd been okay at school, excelling at sports, his exam grades pretty average, but as his dad had said, he'd been army balmy, school cadets, army cadets, and then finally leaving school at 17 and signing up. In fact, Cliff was the first in his family to be in the army, Dad's family being Quakers, pacifists in fact, and Mum's bunch just regular people. And they owned a small B&B in Wales, Mum coming up south to marry Dad, who worked as a sales manager and an engineering firm, specialist parts for aircraft. Now there he stood, Cliff, in a corridor, one Jubilee Park, the most expensive apartment complex in London, part hotel, part apartment block. And there he was chatting to Samira, the new client liaison manager's assistant, a nice looking young girl, Lebanese or something, him telling her about the job, and she seemed fascinated. And he knew the look, but he was happily married with Kath and kids. They were his world. But he was a good looking man and he knew it. Six foot two, broad, tanned, powerful. His suit, very expensive, immaculately tailored. And he smiled to himself. It was still nice, the attention, flattering even. But he was old enough to be her dad. And anyway, it was Kath, she had his heart. This protection contract was running for six more months, that's what they've been told. And the principal, and that was how the team always referred to the clients they protected, some sheik or something from the UAE, a minister of some kind, nothing contentious, wind-addressing jobs they called them. It really being... Well, more about a theatre presentation than any serious threat. These guys, they just liked the fuss and the drama, and they could afford to pay for it too. The staggering amounts of money they had at the disposal were just mind-blowing. But Cliff and the lads ignored it. They'd just become used to this world. The burka-clad wives, the limousines, carrier bags full of money, the insane shopping trips. It was all pretty par for the course. And, of course... Like his colleagues, Cliff had seen action. He'd fought in wars, real wars, Iraq, Libya, a few clandestine others. The Royal Marines generally being up at the sharp end, as his old company commander used to say to him. And he'd seen things, he'd done things, but he was a soldier, he was fine with it all. It was just the job, the thing he'd been very well trained to do. And now as he stood there, he glanced around him. The apartment corridor, wide and empty, laid out especially for security safety, the agency having won the contract for the place years ago. And Cliff was a recent addition. He'd only joined about six months ago. It was good money. Lousy hours. But he had a plan. He told Kath. He discussed it for hours. I'll put the hours in now, save the money, we'll buy some flats, pay off the mortgage, and then we're going to start a small B&B. High in, like the one Kath's family had. That was his idea. And he knew that close protection work like this was generally boring. And all the lads said the same, especially in this weird world they now inhabited. They were just window dressing for rich fuckers. That's what Mick had called it. And it was true. They had the gear, the body armour, earpiece, radios, firearms even, all under diplomatic protection laws, of course, because every one of the lads was a dual citizen now British and United Arab Emirates. 
But in truth, no one wanted to hurt these people. They weren't like kings or presidents or anything. Most were just medium-ranking officials, a few high-ranking ones, but generally non-entities. And of course, the UK authorities turned a complete blind eye to their antics. Because their money bought everything and everyone. Their spending power just ruled the authorities. Don't upset the Arabs was seemingly the local watchword. And the lads had seen various government ministers arrive, the ones off the telly, sucking up to them and fawning around. But it was just business. That's what the bosses said in that first induction training session. Lads, put your prejudices away. See nothing, hear nothing, pick up the check, pick a colour for your Porsche, right? And they'd all laughed and they'd all followed orders like the good soldiers they were. Or had been. Cliff's team was eight strong and they worked in fours. Pairs of two, day shift, afternoon shift, late shift. And much of their job actually involved just waiting around. The principal's movements were pretty much standard now. There were business meetings at the apartment, business meetings at hotels, endless shopping trips, the race course, the embassy functions, and of course the casino. And more importantly, the occasional naughty trip, as the lads like to call them. Prostitutes, high-end, young usually, stashed in some very nice apartments in Chelsea and Mayfair. And those trips just involved the boys waiting in the van, which was boring. But in truth, the van was pretty cool, state-of-the-art, super comfortable, TV, fridge, anything you want, luxurious, pretty much like everything around the principal. And Clifford promised Kath early on it was a safe job. There were no high-profile clients there, they're just middle guys. And of course, in the early days, he'd had the occasional pop star. But generally, Cliff told her he was nowhere he could actually get hurt. Which, to be honest, suited him fine. He'd had his share of being shot at and bombed. And it wasn't fun and it wasn't clever, as Mick often said. Mick was great. They'd served together in the regiment, plus Briggsy and Colin, the other boys on the team being Lance and Stephen. Ex-guards, though, but decent guys. Their old regimental rivalries long put to one side. Although they still took the piss out of each other. They couldn't help it. It was just banter, harmless, fun. And the boss had said to them, Boys, the job's a simple one. Day one, the principal is your focus. Fuck the wives, their kids, the servants. They're just collateral, right? Your one job, boys, is to stop him being damaged. Their first instructor had been ex-SAS, and he was a right laugh. Lads, he said, Her Majesty saw fit to allow us to wear a uniform, right? She trained us up, she sent us around the world, and we all made it back. And then, God bless her, she let us retire with everything still attached. So with that fact, boys, let's make the most of the opportunity she gave us, right? So what do we want? No fucking heroes. What do we call heroes? And they'd all gleefully chorus back. Corpses. They just loved the course. The bloke was solid, a right pro. And the other lads a right laugh too. Only ex-military guys, naturally. All hand-picked, all by recommendation. Clifford learnt the agency was very long established. Colonel Ackerman Forbes in charge, ex-paratroop regiment, a right hard bastard apparently. But decent affair, they've been told, and he was. Nothing much ever happened. He'd been working with them all a good while now, and the new job was even less of a concern. 
There was no danger, no dramas. And boring though it was, it paid bloody well. And Cliff thought it was, well, an easy one. And it was. It was basically standing around, sitting around, hanging around. That's what Mick said. He glanced down the corridor and grinned to himself. That little Samira, what a darling. She was all slipping him and the boys tea and treats from time to time because she knew they were pretty bored. But she was a right little sweetie. And once last month, he'd found her a bit weepy. The pressures of the job, she'd said. And he'd given her a quick cuddle. And he told her she was amazing. And she'd had a giggle and cheered right up. And he, he kind of liked that, doing that for her. He'd felt like her dad, poor young thing. He'd often heard her being yelled at in Arabic on the other side of the door. Yeah, the way these Middle Eastern types treated people. More like slaves. But then he dismissed the thought quickly. Fuck him. Put your prejudices away, the boss had said, and he was right. It was just a fucked up world, really. Beyond his ability to change. It was just sad, but true. And he knew in his heart of hearts the contract was pretty sweet, all things considered. The agency money in the package, brilliant. Generous benefits, health insurance, pension plan, assistance with financial planning, school fees covered. Of course, he'd gone over it with his cath first. You see the sense. Ten years, darling, he'd said. Just ten years. Nose the grindstone, like Dad. Then he'd be out. No more late shifts. No more sudden flights to God knows where. It would all stop. And better, they'd all be financially in a brilliant position. He, well, he never told Kath about the naughty trips, the young girls. He knew it just, it was just upset her. In fact, he told her very little. And to be honest, it was none of their business. He had his views. <sighs> They're all just bloody hypocrites, all of this and that, and then drugs and prostitutes and gambling. But like the boss said, keep it to yourself. And he did. The next week rolled on. A mirror of the last. Principal happened to stay in the apartment, not unsurprisingly. The place was huge and so luxurious. It had its own pool and sauna complex and the balcony was the size of Cliff's lawn. And all in all, it was a pretty nice place to hang around, Mick said. And he didn't really like being in the corridor much either. But he also said he didn't like driving all over the place. To be honest, it was a good job and the lads used to stand around and have a chat and reminisce about the good old days. Then came the mail. That night, a reception. Small apparently, nothing contentious, 15 people, trade delegates of some kind. And as always, not that interesting for the boys, but it was the job. And plus Mick said, the food's going to be amazing. So of course they had to have a team meeting and the agency sent Mr Hammond. He was going to be lead operative for that night. He was a bit spit and polished, Mick had said, but he was sound enough. Ex-rifles major, slightly old school, highly polished shoes and shoes you could sort of cut butter with the creases. To be honest, with guys like that, it was just standard stuff. And apparently he also spoke Arabic, which they all said was a bit of a bonus. Now, the actual apartment security blokes, well, they were pretty nice. Not ex-jobs, some ex-coppers, but... Still, two of the team, Lance and Stephen, from the agency, they were going to be downstairs with them, out on the main doors. It was really about double-checking, because if a job's worth doing, the boss said, we've got to do it better. 
And the briefing continued, usual points and everyone nodding along. It was pretty crisp and concise and Mr Hammond, well, he clearly knew his stuff and they liked that. The boys always said, no bullshit, just the facts. Follow procedure, follow training. That's what he said. And then, jobs are fucking good and shouted Briggsy. And that had got a laugh from everyone, including Mr Hammond. But right at the back of the room, looking slightly mystified at this bunch of men, sat young Samira. The poor little thing that day acting as hotel liaison. And the principal had told her she had to understand what was going on. It was nice in a way, though, Cliff thought. Mr Hammond had bowed to her slightly when they first met and spoken to in Arabic. And he said something flattering, apparently, because she said in English he was such a nice gentleman, which he'd really liked. He'd actually blushed. Finally, the evening arrived. Large cars now pulling up in the underground garage. Mostly Rolls Royces showing up on the security monitors and the boys were on it. The guests had to go through the apartment building security, then the metal detectors, they got scanned and then they got sent up in the private lift. And on the door, they got welcomed, final pat down, just for show, all part of the theatre. And then Briggs used to joke, Mickey Mouse theatre. But then, of course, in they went. And Cliff and the boys took up their positions, his position at the back of the room by the open terrace window, keenly watching everything, outside and in. There were no tall buildings on the other side able to see in, and his earpiece now briefly hissed. Clear, clear, the signal said, and everyone on the list apparently checked in. And so the main doors were closed. And now he smiled at Samira, and she nodded to him. She was wearing a full headscarf today, poor cow. The way these people treated women. But his thoughts instantly cleared as always. Don't get involved, no prejudice, do the job, take the money. And now sipping his water, he quickly scanned the room. It was just the usual types. Rich, muddied, connected, expensive suits, the few women designer clad, all with headscarves. And somewhere a piano was tinkling away. And there he sat, the principal, sitting centre stage in the lounge on this great big cream leather sofa. He had these white robes on, a gold braided band about his headdress, and he was laughing at some comment. He'd actually only spoken to Cliff once, once in six months. He'd asked for a pen, not even looking at him or saying thank you. That was it, that's how they were. But Cliff just thought, ah, they ignore everyone, we're just servants. And that's what Mick had said, we're fucking servants. But Cliff didn't care. It was just about the money, nothing else mattered. And in truth, it was about Kath and the kids and their future. And he knew he'd have walked through fire for them. And this evening, just another dull thing, perfectly organised, running like countless other events he'd been to. Boring. He glanced up. There were waiters gliding about, low chatter, nothing out of the ordinary at all. And generally, everything went through the principal secretary, Mr Hamza, a sort of sharp-faced looking Arab kid. Same arrogance as the principal, 20 if he was a day, haughty and dismissive. But once again, who cared? That's what Mick had said. And Cliff had glanced at his watch. Mick was right. Four more hours to go, shift over. And as he looked up, that was when the place went to absolutely shit. The final report was pretty vague. Deliberately so, Cliff and the boys said. And the boss had actually told them the real truth. There was no blame attached to the agency at all. 
Apparently it was all down to the hotel apartment people. You see, it was them that had hired Samira, after all, her being the big problem. They'd failed to properly check her out. It transpiring, she was in fact an ex-Mossad operative, Israeli, not Lebanese, highly trained, highly trained. And in this particular case, which was a weird one, she was highly motivated too. But it wasn't political and it wasn't religious. The boss said it was amazing. Apparently, it was entirely personal. But as Clifford said, it just happened so fast. It was an inside job, classic scenario. Now, the agency said no one could have foreseen what happened because, of course, her little plan had been months, months in the design. She'd hired in extra assistants herself because of her job. There were new staff, waiters, all ex-colleagues, right under everyone's noses. And the smoke bombs, the stun grenades, the weapons, all had been taken in in her car, cleverly hidden in her tiny office. And when it kicked off, it had kicked off. There were bangs and smoke, and everyone was off balance, guests screaming, lights going out, grenades stunning people. And then it really had gone tits up. The principal had been shot expertly, twice through the forehead, close range. Poor bastard didn't stand a chance. And Briggsy, of course, had been trying to get close at the time and he'd been briefly hospitalised and a little bit banged up. But apparently he was going to be fine, more of a scrape than anything else. But now as he stood in another corridor, Cliff, he couldn't shake that, that last image, the last thing he'd seen. There she was, little Samira, little sweetie, her headscarf off, shouting about her lost little sister, the black sheep of her family. You see, apparently it turned out she was some young prostitute, the principal had been banging, and Samira had tracked her down using all her old skills, and she straightened her out and sent her back home to be with her family. But that was when she found out about the principal being a kinky old fucker. He'd apparently hurt her, he'd cut her, beaten her, pretty nastily. And Cliff still remembered the poor fucker's face. He just looked amazed as she screamed at him and then shot him. Bang, bang. The shot's deliberately quite deafening. But then there was that final memory he had. She rushed up to him just so fast and she stuck a fat needle straight into his neck before he could even move. And she kissed him on the cheek and she said, Cliff, you are a lovely, lovely man. I could never hurt you. Remember, your wife is a very lucky woman. And then it had all gone black. The embassy gave everyone a Porsche as compensation. And his one was in Kath's favourite colour. A thank you for his discretion, that's what they were told. All the lads were happy as anything. And Cliff never told anybody but Briggsy. He'd actually named his car. And then, of course, Briggsy blabbed the bastard. And the lads took the piss, of course. There it was, a yellow Porsche called Samira. Well, we hope you enjoy that selection of today. And pop in again next week when there'll be another three stories ready for you from us, the Story Hive. So as we like to leave you, we hope the world is good to you today. Bye now.